Welcome to the European CME Forum podcast. European CME Forum is a not-for-profit organization that promotes multi-channel discussion on matters relating to European and global CME CPD. My name is Eugene Pozniak. I'm the program director of European CME Forum. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Robin Stevenson, editor-in-chief of JECME. The focus of today's episode is Robin's new book, Learning and Behaviour in Medicine, A Voyage Around CME and CPD. Hello, Robin, and thank you for joining our podcast again. Oh, very nice to be here. Excellent. No, and, uh, and congratulations on publishing your new book, Learning and Behaviour in Medicine, A Voyage Around CME CPD. This is available now, having been published in February. Firstly, can you tell us a bit about what made you think about writing this book and the inspiration behind it? Well, I think it began um, around about the time uh, Don Moore and I were looking at the articles that had been submitted for his special collection on uh, outcomes in CMECPD. And one of them gave me the idea, perhaps, uh, one, perhaps I might write something about that topic. And then I thought, well, why, why restrict it to that topic alone? Why not just think about a simple handbook about covering uh, the world of CMECPD? Because I didn't think that uh, at that time or even now, there is any such uh, um, general handbook uh, covering most aspects of, C- of CMECPD in, in, uh, together. So that was how it started. And then perhaps, um, Perhaps it was easier to do it because lockdown uh, uh, happened a couple of years ago and um, I had more time on my hands than otherwise otherwise I would have had. And so I think perhaps lockdown helped it to to take off. And it's very true. There is very little out there by way of publications to help guide anyone involved in CME on just what it is, how to develop, CME programs, how to get it accredited. Of course, there are individual um, guides along the way, and we see some very complicated, in-depth books from North America, but nothing really outside of that to help guide the rest of us. I think that is right. And so, in in writing your book, uh, can you say something about your approach? How how did how did it actually sort of come out in practice? Well, as you said, the, the, the formal title is Learning and Behaviour in Medicine, but the subtitle is A Voyage Around CME and CPD. And the book is based on, on, on the idea of a little island somewhere called CME CPD. And around the coast of the island, there are nine ports of call. And each port of call deals with its own particular kind of merchandise. And when you put all the merchandise together on the island, then you arrive at the concept, the model, the concept of modern CME CPD. And so each of the ports of call is represented by a chapter in the book. And uh, well, I briefly mentioned the, 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 the titles of, of the chapter. The, the first chapter talks about a little bit about the history of CME and how the concept of CPD um, arose. And uh, I make the case in the chapter for maintaining a distinction between CME and CPD. Um, In a sense, I I suggest that CME is uh, 
what helps doctors to treat their patients. And CPD is what helps doctors to treat themselves. In other words, in CPD, the physicians are the patients. And I think this is a useful distinction to make, but of course, not everyone agrees. And there is a move, a move afoot to just to call everything CPD or, C, or, C or continuing education. And, and in a sense, I'm perhaps arguing against that. Um, the second chapter or the second protocol is entitled Culture of Learning. And in it, I try to relate different kinds of organizational cultures with a culture of learning. Um, it's a very short chapter. Then the third chapter is entitled The Professional Practice Gap. And that's because in modern CME, we now think of uh, professional practice gap as being the, the essential part from which everything else develops. It, because we're dealing with adult education, we're dealing with andragogy instead of pedagogy. We're dealing with uh, education that is problem oriented rather than subject oriented. Um, and so uh, uh, in that chapter, I, I tried to uh, uh, explain how the concept of discrepancy for, was first um, introduced by Robert Fox and how the idea of discrepancy, that is the difference between what is and what should be, uh, developed into the concept of uh, professional practice gap. Um, then in the fourth uh, chapter, I talk about the three, well, the three types of, of professional practice gap. The, uh, the deficiency, development, and confidence. These, these were, this concept um, uh, uh, was first suggested to me by Don Moore, and I, I think it's, it's very useful. Um, then the fifth chapter is about gap discovery and analysis of the gap, the, the analysis of the gap to find out uh, what has caused it. Um, and this I try to describe in, at different levels. In, in, in relation to an individual physician, when he's confront, confronted with a simple clinical problem, which he might solve by uh, accessing up to date on his, on his uh, phone. And then a higher level within the hospital, the hospital CME department, which looks at problems uh, within individual units or even individual physicians within the hospital. Then at the higher level, the specialty level, which perhaps relates to specialty societies having to look at the, their own practice within the specialty to find out where the practice gaps exist. And fourthly and lastly, at a national level where non-specialty specific uh, gaps are, are, are relevant, uh, many of these gaps being cultural gaps like end of life care or addiction or obesity, um, uh, and uh, there the, the authorities are, are the, the, the Royal Colleges uh, or um, in the UK, the General Medical Council. So I try to, uh, as, as it were, stratify uh, gaps uh, um, uh, 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 among these four levels. Then um, the sixth chapter is about the provision of CME uh, and the, the various ways that uh, CME is, is delivered. And in that chapter, I try to concentrate uh, or try, try, to, uh, try to put emphasis on the, the, the development of informal CME, which 
has happened uh, in the last 20 years, perhaps, um, to such an extent that it's now appreciated as being in many ways more important um, than, than the traditional formal CME. Um, then the chapter seven is about outcome assessment. Um, chapter eight is uh, accreditation. And in accreditation, I talk about the difference between activity accreditation as practiced in Europe and uh, provider accreditation as, as practiced in, in North America. And the last chapter is about CPD and fitness to practice. And in other words, their fitness to practice is perhaps more related to um, assessment of CPD than purely of CME. And so these would be the, the nine ports of coal that I tried to visit uh, on, uh, on the voyage. Wow, that sounds very detailed and comprehensive. Uh, but you call it a handbook. You've kindly shared a copy with me as well. And it's it's certainly not um, a huge textbook. But um, how have you approached each of these topics so that it is a concise handbook? Well, I tried to, you're right, it's not a, not a long book. Um, uh, and I tried to approach the different topics uh, through the, the idea of the different kinds of passengers that I would like to have with me on the voyage. And I've considered that there should be four groups of passengers. The first group I should mention, although not necessarily the most important group, would be the educationalists. Now, it's not primarily for the educationalists. Uh, educationalists might find the, the voyage too short, with not enough time to spend in all the uh, interesting places along the voyage. But nevertheless, it would be important to have the educationists because the educationists so far have perhaps not engaged in meaningful dialogue with, with, with physicians. Now, that's not all the fault of the educationalists. In many cases, it's the fault of the physicians who often think that they have not much to learn from educationalists. They've been teaching about medicine all, all their professional lives. They know how to do it. Um, we believe that they don't know how to do it as well as they think they can, and that they would benefit from uh, dialogue with educationalists. Uh, so to put them together on the one voyage, I think would be a very good idea. Uh, and physicians would benefit hugely by, by becoming part of the CME community. Um, the CME community is, is different uh, across, across the, on, on either side of the Atlantic. In uh, North America, CME, CME community is well integrated into the academic institutions and the medical schools, and as such, has a, a developed a tradition of, of scholarly research. That doesn't happen to the same extent in Europe. And so therefore, if, if the physicians were to talk to the educationalists, perhaps we might go some way along the road to Europe, um, accepting that it's in the interest of, uh, of, of, of the medical profession for CME to become an integral part of, of the academic institutions, in particular of the medical schools. Um, and also, it's terribly important for doctors in their professional life to be aware of, of how CME can help them. In other words, CME at the moment is often considered to be an enemy in the sense it's a bureaucratic hurdle. Whereas if used properly, CME should be a physician's friend. 
And I would hope that the book might introduce physicians to the idea that they should befriend CME and CPD rather than uh, accept their existence with reluctance. Um, so the second group therefore would be the physicians. Um, and the third group of passengers would be the providers. And the providers will be in two groups really, the professional providers such as yourself. Now, I haven't got that much to say to the professional providers because the professional providers know a lot about CME. They know, they know how, to, how, to, uh, how to deliver it, how to plan it, how to assess it, how, how to, how to, um, and, how, and how to accredit it. But the amateur providers are more important because the amateur providers are the physicians who are members of the specialist societies and who are parachuted into the education committee of the society without really knowing anything about CME. And these are the, these amateurs are the people that uh, I would hope would, 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 would gain more from being passengers on, on the void because they would learn that there's actually much more to CME than they ever thought. And the fourth group would be the accreditors. And, the accreditors, uh, um, we believe to be an essential uh, uh, component of, 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 of the CME world. And they, they function in, mainly in two different ways. Um, on this side of the Atlantic, accreditors act, uh, accredit activities, individual educational activities or interventions, and it's called activity accreditation as you know, and in North America, they do it differently. There, they accredit the providers of the education on the basis of their record over recent years. And so I describe in the chapter on accreditation, I describe that these two different ways of, you know, by which it, it can be done and try to um, assess the strong points uh, and the weak points of both systems. So these would be the four groups of, of passengers that I'd hope to take with me on the voyage. Yes, yeah, yeah. The book addresses each of the chapters, yeah, the nine chapters from from these four lenses, I suppose, of the of the passengers. It's a nice way of, of putting this, and um, and especially for the readers because, of course, CME now is involving so many additional groups whether they're on the periphery or very much involved uh, it, it's it presents the whole the overall picture very nicely to those readers so if we have let's say the funders of education such as uh, the drug companies they'll be the major ones but it's not limited to them they're the different groups that are um it could even be a hospital department with an interest in cme and needing to approve funding and this book can actually present to them the overall CME picture so that they have a better understanding of this. Um, and of course, yeah, the regulators and um, any other people who want to dip into CME can see it through, these, through the eyes of these four passenger groups. Uh, so yeah, it will be really useful to people inside sort of our community, as it were, and as well as outside. Yeah, that I, uh, that's right. And, and perhaps uh, it, it's a criticism of the book that there's no chapter um, dedicated to the drug industry. I mean, I talk about the drug industry and the drug industry is very important 
important in CME, both from its uh, uh, beneficial effects and its uh, less beneficial effects. As we know, that there's a long history of uh, tension between um, uh, educators and CME, uh, the CME community and the drug industry. Uh, but in many ways, it's been a productive tension in that we now have a system where most people recognize the rules by which uh, the industry relates to CME. And as a result of these rules, the overall quality of CME has become more reliable, uh, less biased, and, uh, more, and more helpful to the profession. So although there's no specific chapter dedicated to the industry, nevertheless, the industry does feature uh, uh, significantly throughout the book. Great. Yeah, and while you were writing this, did you find any particular chapters more difficult to uh, to write? Any challenges that you found along the way? Actually, I found them all quite difficult um, because um, I didn't quite realize how ignorant I was about it all, despite having spent quite a big part of the latter part of my life involved in CME. I had never really um, methodically um, studied studied the literature, and now that I have, um, uh, I, I feel much better equipped to to have opinions about CME. Um, I the most tedious chapter was perhaps looking at all the different uh, ways of providing CME, the um, enduring material, the webinars, um, uh, the various. Uh, clever internet um, sophistications that have been added to uh, to e-learning uh, it was just quite quite uh, quite a, a lot to try to absorb uh, without actually involving that many interesting new ideas it was much more technical and mechanical perhaps than some of the other chapters but that was the one that probably took longest uh, and and from which i derived least least uh, pleasure, perhaps. Um, I already knew quite a bit about accreditation. So accreditation was, in a sense, quite easy. I had, I had in a past life, been the president of the European Board for Accreditation in, in Pneumology. So I did know a bit about accreditation. Uh, the educational aspects themselves, the, the educational psychology, about, about which there's not a great deal, I, I did find very interesting, and it's an area that I would like to broaden my interest in the future. No, and I certainly found a similar thing while while reading it. Uh, yeah, I've been active in CME for for many years now, and and <laughs> I suppose we get confident, uh, wrongly so, in in our knowledge. And I found your book actually plugging lots of gaps, giving interesting background <laughs> as to why certain things have come about. And, um, and I've certainly started looking at sort of the whole enterprise of CME in a different way in recent years um, as well. But what you were describing earlier in our conversation about uh, especially the healthcare professionals looking at CME, there's something that's subject driven and yet it's more interesting for them if it's problem-based. So using case-based learning approach to their education, which is far more used to them because that's closer to what they actually see in clinical practice. And to look at CME as something that addresses that professional practice gap, you know, to identify that. And that really is, is the crux of what CME is, is about. It's not just 
pushing out information de novo to to people, uh, which seems to be the perception out there, especially in Europe and, and across the world, the CME is this this sledgehammer to ram education into people's minds. But but to look at CME as something that that uh, actually allows healthcare professionals to look at their own. Uh, to practice in the clinic to identify their education gaps in this way and the the machinations then behind the support of this concept is is really what we should be looking at from CME and, and to your point just now as well about the accreditors um, instead of trying to define everything to the nth degree that CME must be this or must be that but to, to start with let me have to say I think the ACCME approach is identify the professional practice gap. That's that's your starting point and everything builds behind them. I think this, this book sort of um, really nicely describes this approach for perhaps the less, um, well, the, we in Europe, you know, the less practiced in CME and, um, and in a nice straightforward way. So it is a handbook, which then also guides the reader to other resources if they want to delve deeper into any of these chapters any of these topics i think the book can actually say right well go go to these resources and and find out more yes i think that i agree with that um in other words we have to try to get physicians to think differently um, about their education from uh, their undergraduate education or their training which was primarily curricular, subject-orientated. And it's very hard for, uh, for the physicians, it seems to be hard for the physicians to accept that that is not the appropriate or the best way to deal with their adult education, with their continuing education. Uh, and we have to try to introduce the, the concept of CME as being reparative. In other words, you're repairing things that have gone wrong rather than just trying to I have a blanket review of uh, state-of-the-art knowledge. And it, it's just, I think, terribly important to instill the concept of CME as reparative uh, in, in, the, in the imaginations of physicians. And I think it helps them, therefore, to take a new look at it and, to, and, uh, and, and thereby to benefit from, from it. Yes. Yeah, and for the accreditors to support this as well, to actually get into the minds of the healthcare professionals and see what is it that they can actually be accrediting for them, rather than looking at I don't know, the new clever technology that they think might be a good idea to accredit. Well, I, I think that is, that's right. And I think that applies perhaps more to provider accreditors than to activity accreditors, because the provider accreditors have more of a dialogue <clears throat> with the providers. After all, they, um, <clears throat> they are asking the providers to talk about their recent record and looking at ways in which their performance could be improved. Um, and the provider accreditors in the US and Canada do believe they have generated between themselves and providers a kind of community of practice. And I think that does not apply to the same extent with activity accreditation in Europe. And, and so I do, I do come down in the book in favor of provider accreditation as being um, a better way to do it than activity accreditation, which does not necessarily make me popular uh, with, with, with my European colleagues, I think. 
it's uh, yeah, yeah, a long long standing uh, discussion that's been going on there yeah. um but of course yeah having had experience or having experience of both sides of activity accreditation and provider accreditation and looking from an outside of the US perspective and provider accreditation gives the opportunity for the providers to feed back to the accreditor as to what is working what's not working when it comes to education because the uh, there's a standardized way of evaluating the effectiveness of the education that's reported back to the accreditor the accreditation body itself and um, and there was a t in the in the past two or three years uh, whereas the activity type had to be identified you know whether it was a live meeting or a enduring uh, piece of education there was a new format that was approved with the american medical association that was just called other and this other activity can include anything that the provider deems to actually address a professional practice gap where the education is is delivered and the um, the outcomes measured, and it gives the provider the flexibility to actually go down any route uh, possible that's not covered by one of the standard formats to actually um, engage in education with their target audience. And that and that's sort of allows the provider to be creative, think outside the box a little bit, and actually focus on the objective of the CME and not the objective of the bureaucracy of getting the CME accredited. I agree. I'm, in a sense, the the role of the creditor has changed because the creditor started off as a policeman to stop the um, industry exerting undue influence uh, in favor of uh, the pr promotion of their own of their own products and out of that perhaps has that's that's been a success that's worked and they've moved on now as you say to help the providers not only um, uh, de deliver unbiased education, but deliver better education, uh, education more firmly grounded in the in the concepts uh, of, of modern CME. Yeah. yeah, and that's what actually what I particularly love about this book is that it doesn't focus on those old discussions, but actually looking at how CME can be done better and what you've said for many years you know, to referring to it as modern CME we've moved to a new version of CME especially in Europe you now outside of North America that really needs to look at useful education for the healthcare professionals mm. I agree um so so now on reflection it's a few months clearly after you've sort of written the book it's uh, now being published in February what what do you think would be the main messages that people would take away from from the book. Um, one of the areas that I found interesting to uh, to study was the professional practice gap in relation to misdiagnosis. Now, misdiagnosis is not does not feature very much within uh, within CME literature, but nevertheless. It's very, very important from the, the clinician's point of view that he tries to do whatever he can to, do, to improve the quality of his, di of his diagnostic skill. And that's not something that it seems the educationalists uh, have picked up on, as, uh, uh, which is perhaps um, unfortunate. Because when you do look at um, 
decision-making, the theory of decision-making, how doctors come to make diagnostic decisions, and the way in which their thinking is affected by all the cognitive biases uh, involved. Um, it's, it's interesting to, to contemplate the, the, the possibility that by learning about the, the biases, physicians can use the, their learning as a, as a de-biasing uh, stratagem to, to reduce their misdiagnosis. This is an area that I did find fascinating to explore. And, and I have put a, a good deal of emphasis uh, um, in, on, on misdiagnosis as an important type of deficiency, PPG, deficiency professional practice gap, which has received, I think, very little attention in the past. So and that's one area that I would like to explore a little bit further in the future. So, so we're certainly seeing more interest from that from the drug company side as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely right. In, in those early days, there's, and even today, actually, the less experienced providers still think that CME is about pushing messages about novel treatments. Things. And, and it is, it's, a, it's an old habit that we really need to sort of wash out of the system. Yeah, I think so. Because of traditionally the way the drug industry supported CME in its early days, that CME was largely related to treatment because that was what the drug industry were engaged in. They were engaged in providing the means of treating um, diseases. But, um, the, and, and therefore they were less interested in, in diagnosis than in treatment. And that's perhaps why misdiagnosis or the, 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 the professional practice gaps uh, related to misdiagnosis have received less emphasis uh, it, than, 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 than they should have. And perhaps only now we're beginning to realize, perhaps because the influence of the, of the drug industry is less than it was, that, the, that to CME should encompass not just treatment, but also uh, diagnosis. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And actually, we are seeing a, um, an increased interest from industry on treatment and diagnosis as well, because with the newer therapies, you know, personalized medicine and, you know, all these targeted agents that are coming out now, it's, it's critically important to get the diagnosis right first time. Otherwise, it's a hugely expensive mistake. Who do you think would be the largest group that would find this book of use? Well, I think the largest group would be the physicians and the and the other and the other healthcare professionals, the nurses, the pharmacists, the physiotherapists, the, the scientists. Because in the past, the CME community, as I think I said, has been quite good at talking to itself, but has not been terribly good at reaching out to the users, to the users of their education. Now that's partly because the users of the education have not been unduly receptive of their advances. But nevertheless, we have come to um, a situation where the CME community knows what it's doing and knows what each individual component of it is doing. But the users have a very foggy idea of the whole concept of CME and how it's, uh, how it's, uh, how it's provided and how it's, uh, how it's assessed. So I would hope that um, 
the healthcare professionals would be the main people who are likely to benefit from the book. Uh, <clears throat> somebody said, I heard that one of the reviews of the book said, <clears throat> if Ethiopia ever gets a CME system, this is the book they need. And in a sense, what he's saying is that it's not a particularly theoretical book full of um, educational uh, psych psych psychology and um, uh, educational concepts, but it's a practical book for uh, people who want to develop the CME system in their countries and, um, and benefit from the, the CME such that patient care can be improved. Yeah, no, I can see that working and it's and it acts as a, a vadamecum for these kind of organizations just to make sure that they've covered off every part of the CME spectrum as they set up systems or as they look at CME themselves. Um, yeah, I'd go further, I think, with even the people involved in CME and, and actually describe it as essential reading for any practitioner in, in CME. Uh, perhaps even as a sort of self-assessment perspective, that everything in that book should be something that a CME professional or anyone active in CME really should know something about. It must have some level of competency in, in each of these nine chapters. And I think it'll be a, a good, yeah, it's, it's, it'll be a good self-assessment for someone to actually go through. And if they find that there is something there that they're not familiar with or haven't thought about before, that, that really they, they need to delve a bit deeper and, uh, and, and do their own CPD in their, in their approach to CME. I think that's right. And although the book is quite short, nevertheless, it's quite well referenced. And so it can be used as a starting point for someone who wants to uh, in, in, improve his or her knowledge about any particular uh, subject. There are, there are quite, uh, there are adequate references there to allow him to, to, to explore further. Absolutely, absolutely. No, and that's, I, I found that great just to be able to uh, use your guidance to actually read deeper into each, each of these topics. And we should say at this stage that if, if there, we have any listeners still on this podcast, as European CME Forum, we are going to be promoting this book, obviously, because this really has to be essential reading for anyone who's interested in European CME Forum. And, um, and we're going to be giving away a number of complimentary copies. So for the first five people who send a message to me directly, we will send you the code to claim your complimentary ebook. So just drop me an email with, with that. Um, but we should say at this stage, Robin, that the book will be available in two formats. Yeah, as an ebook as well as the hardback edition. That's right. Yeah, and the uh, the ebook will be uh, much less. Yeah, depending on your currency and where where you're coming from, the the pricing is slightly different. But uh, but go to the CME Forum website. We'll have a page there with more information about how you can actually get copies of the book. Yeah, the hardback is is more expensive than the ebook, but I think we're expecting more ebook sales because it is that sort of the handbook approach, which is easy then to read from a device or or the computer. The, the printed copy is available as well. Yes, I, that's right. I, I, my guess is that the 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 ebook will be um, much more relevant to most people than the hardback copy. I suppose some organisations, some institutions might um, decide to 
uh, to buy the hard copy. But I would think that that would be the minority. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time today, Robin. I wish you every success with the book and look forward to hearing, as I'm sure you are too, what the readers think of it, whatever their role or interest is in CNECPD. That was Robin Stevenson, Editor-in-Chief of Jack Me, joining me to discuss his new book, Learning and Behaviour in Medicine, A Voyage Around CME and CPD, which is available to buy now. As I mentioned in today's episode, the first five people to get in touch with me by email at epozniak at cmeforum.org will receive a code to collect their free copy of the book. Thank you for listening and join us for more episodes as we explore all things CME CPD.